John chapter 2. John chapter 2. If you're just visiting Brandywine Grace, I hope this, this is going to be true about us today. I hope it's always true about us. Our Bibles will be open and we'll be talking about Jesus. That's, that's what we're about at Brandywine Grace. So we're going to jump into this John chapter 2. We just started preaching through this book of the Bible. And we just, John has introduced us to a Jesus and all his amazing names. Last week, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You remember that? Wow, I, I'm feeling alone today up here. My personality type needs more affirmation than I'm feeling. In this section, Jesus does something amazing at a wedding, and we're going we're gonna to read about it. I've been, as a pastor, I've been to a lot of weddings, and I've seen a lot of interesting things happen at weddings. I remember I did one, this one wedding where the whole, uh, the groomsmen were these huge guys, real tall. And I remember telling them, listen guys, don't lock your knees. This is a hot, uh, it's a hot summer wedding. Don't lock your knees. You got to stay loose. Concentrate on this because you'll, you'll go out. This is going to be, this is a, a, a longer ceremony, so don't lock your knees. And this was like a really fancy wedding, and they had all these pillars. And while I was doing the message, the biggest dude, I heard this huge crash, and I looked over, and he went out hard, just totally out, knocked the pillar over. So the pillars that were like decorating and holding the flowers and all crashed and everybody's in shock, and, you know, what do you do? Like, do you, do you stop and make notice? Can we get a medic over here? Can we help this guy? I've seen some crazy things happen at weddings. There's a lot of pressure at weddings. That's, what, that's one of the benefits, I think, of weddings in COVID. I just did a wedding, um, and I've, I've done a couple weddings during COVID, and they're shrunk down in size. And I'll say this also, they're shrunk down in expense. I was just walking through my neighborhood the other day, and, and I was talking to a, a neighbor about this, and she said they spent 40000 each on their two daughters' weddings. Eighty grand. Woo! That's a wedding. Eighty grand. And so, anyway, I'm losing my train of thought. Um, everybody wants it to be this perfect day, right? We want, we want it. To, to be this perfect day, and I, Amy reminded me of something this week that crazy that happened at our wedding. We got married. It was an awesome day in Buffalo. We got married in the small church that Amy grew up in, up in Buffalo, and then we had a tent like this on her family farm. It was just this beautiful day, and the, re- and the reception was taking place, but unbeknownst to us, the caterer was running out of food. Now, that's a bad one. You know, when you got lines of people... Um, waiting, passing through the line to get their, their food, and they're running out. And Amy said she actually went into the bathroom. We had these porta potties set up. She actually went into the house to use the bathroom. When she went in to use the bathroom, she could hear the caterer and her staff saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're going to run out. Somebody go. So they were in her, her mom's kitchen. They said, start opening her cupboard, see what's in there, and see what we can, what we can do, what we can come up with. 
Now, some of the ladies I see are holding their hands like this. This is like the, their worst nightmare for a wedding. I, didn't, I could care less. I was marrying the girl of my dreams. They say, we're running out of food. I don't care. I was good. But, it's, but it, that's embarrassing, right? It's a potentially embarrassing moment. I don't remember it having any effect at all. But if you run out of food, that's distressing. That's what's happening here in this text. They're not running out of food. They're running out of wine, which in many cases might, you might consider worse. They're running out of wine at the wedding, and it's a really distressing moment, and that's what we're going to read about right here. And Mary's, Jesus' mother, Mary, is really distressed over this. She's, obviously, it's a family wedding. Maybe she was tasked with some of the hospitality. Maybe, it, maybe she was helping the caterer out. Maybe she was helping to provide. For whatever reason, she is really stressed over this because they have no more wine and the childhood dreams of the ideal wedding were about to dissolve into a nightmare. And we're going to learn that there is some spiritual meaning here. The drama of this text is real. I want you to feel it. And the moment provides the setting for Jesus' first miracle, John tells us. It's his first sign. And it's full of spiritual meaning. Let's read the story. All right, just follow along, turn on your, your uh, Bibles on your phones or look along with, follow along with someone else. This is the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Remember, his disciples are the ones that have just, he's just started to call. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted, the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor, line, poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Lord, I pray that you would just bless the preaching and reading of your word this morning and help us to understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at verse 11. It's the last verse. It says that this is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Canaan, Galilee. 
So what we have here is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and, and he starts it off with a sign, John tells us. Now, the Greek word used here for sign is actually simeon, sign. But it's actually a different word than all the other Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the Gospels use. They actually use a different word for sign that, that would be more translated miracle. And it's the word Greek, you'll get this when you hear it, is dunamis, dynamite. So the words that they use for miracles are like these, these, these uh, powerful just demonstrations of power. John doesn't use that word. He uses the word sign, simeon, which means sign. And he uses that word to to distinguish. He's saying this, a sign distinguishes a person or a thing from others. What is he wanting to distinguish? Remember, he's telling us all about Jesus. His intent in writing is to explain Jesus to us all, appeal to you to believe in him and have life in his name. That's his purpose, John 20, 31. So he's giving us these signs and he's saying that these signs are nothing in and of themselves. It's not about the sign. It's about what or who they point to and the significance of the person. So what he's wanting to do in some ways is it's almost like he's downplaying the, the miracle because it's not about the miracle. It's about who the miracle points to. It's about the significance. Or you might say the sign reveals the significance of the person. So the question we should ask is, what does this first sign that Jesus does in his public ministry signify? That's what we should be looking for. What, what does this mean? So we're going to look at it together. I'll use an illustration though. Signs point to something significant. That's what signs are intended to do. Signs they're not significant in and of themselves. Here's an illustration. I was walking through my neighborhood yesterday, and the, one of the stop signs is on the ground. It still looks like a stop sign. It's red, and it's painted, and it's got stop on it. But it's lost its significance, right? Because it's not in the right place what's the significance of the stop sign it's not it's not just the metal that it's or the color that it is it's that it it's it represents something it points to something this is an intersection that if you don't stop at you could wind up in a hospital bed right there's significance because the the sign is pointing to something but the metal and the color don't mean anything unless it's functioning the way it's intended to do. The sign here that he does, turning water into wine, it's not about did Jesus do that or not? Is that real or not? I believe the scripture says that he did do it, but it's not about that. It's about what we're supposed to learn and from the spiritual significance of it. Does that make sense? I'm belaboring it. Here we go. Let's look for the significance. What's this pointing to? What's the sign pointing to? Now, you need to know, ancient Near East wedding, different than our weddings. Not the same as our weddings. You need to understand that their weddings lasted like a week long. So their, their celebrations lasted a week. So you got catering issues if you've got a week-long celebration. That's a lot harder to plan for. 
and, and, so, and all the alcohol that you need. And the, bride, the, groom, the bridegroom, the groom was responsible for planning this thing out. We've identified the problem. They ran out of wine. Maybe he failed to plan well. Maybe more people showed up than he was expecting. Maybe these people were heavier drinkers. We don't know why, but he ran, they ran out of wine, and it was a massive embarrassment in this culture. What we don't maybe can't appreciate is that in the ancient Near East, in Jesus' time, and even in the Middle East today, that hospitality is everything to these people. This is a massive embarrassment to run out of food or to run out of wine. In fact, some commentators say that you could... This is crazy, but you could face a lawsuit for running out of alcohol at your wedding. That's how serious hospitality was for them. This is a scandalous moment, and Jesus' mom gets involved. They've run out of wine. Do something, Jesus. Fix it. Now, why get Jesus involved? Jesus is a carpenter. He's not a caterer. He's not a beer distributor. Why would she get him involved? Some would say because she expected Jesus to do a miracle. I I don't agree with that. And here's why. Because John tells us this is the first miracle. (laughs) It's his first sign. So there's there's people that actually theorize that when Jesus was a child playing with things, he used to to make like little mud figurines and then turn them into real animals. The Bible doesn't tell us any of those things. It's mere speculation. I think that, that Mary went to Jesus because at this point she's likely a widow. Jesus is her firstborn son, and he has proved himself to be a resourceful, capable, diligent, problem-solving son. If you're a widow in the ancient Near East, you were counting on your son to take care of you. Did she have, was there a better son to ever take care of a widow in all of history? She saw a problem and she went to the person that she knew would try to fix it. You know anybody like that in your life? They're just resourceful. They fix things. That's Jesus the carpenter. John does this a lot. He, he gives this, this story like a purely human, na- on a na- purely human natural level, but there's this, it's a sign that gives spiritual, theological, biblical significance that's more than the people are expecting. Transcends. My point is, this is bigger than water into wine. We're looking for the significance of this. Mary says, do something, Jesus. Fix it. Now look at Jesus' response. I want to ask a couple questions about this. Look at it. Jesus, do something, fix it. Jesus, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Two questions. Jesus, why do you talk to your mother that way? (laughs) Resourceful sons seem a little rude. It's not what you think. Woman, 
the word woman was a sign and a title of great respect. It would be like, down south they say, ma'am or madam. It was a title of respect. It wasn't like a cab driver in New York City saying, yo, where to, lady? It was a title of respect. When he was on the cross, if you know your Bibles, Jesus was dying, and he turned to his mother, and he turned to this disciple who's writing this gospel, his best and beloved friend John, and he said, woman, there's your son. He's going to take care of you. It's a title of respect. He's not being rude here. It was a polite form of address. Okay, so we'll deal with that question. And you laughed. You had that same question. What does he mean when he says, what does your concern have to do with me? What, what is that? In, in the Greek, this is actually a really, like you can go to different translations and all the different translators do different things with this one because it's so hard to translate. It's a really confusing arrangement of words. Here's the literal translation. What is this to you, to me? <laughs> what is this to you, to me? Now, this is where there's, there's a rebuke in this. This is where he's correcting his mother. And this is basically what he's saying. John is laying out the start of Jesus' ministry. And what Jesus is saying is, my life now is all about one singular focus. I'm going to do the will of the Father. My life is about the mission and, and the, the mission of the Father. I'm the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. That's my mission. And I don't want anything to distract me from that. So, what does what you're asking me to do have to do with my mission? Another way of saying it. When it comes to my earthly mission and ministry, nobody tells me what to do except for the Father. There's a note of correction. Jesus' relationship with his mother is changing due to his obligations to the Father. You guys with me? All previous relationships, especially natural ones, are going to be revised. Because what matters most is not whether you're related to Jesus, but whether you're spiritually related to Jesus. That's his family, right? Now, ironically, after saying that to her, he deals with the problem. So this must be significant. She says, and I love this, whatever he says, you do it. R.C. Sproul said, no one has ever received better instructions from anyone in all of history than these servants received from their mother when she told them, do what he says. There's application far beyond the immediate task those servants had to do. Do what Jesus says. Now, what does he do? You know the story. 
Now, I, I, want to, I want to talk about this for a second. There's something scandalous about what his first miracle is. Like commentators would say this is a profane moment because it has something to do with alcohol. You know, a lot of people may be new to church, they come to church and they think Jesus is like this no fun, killjoy man. If you're going to follow God, you're not going to have any fun anymore because God's not into fun. He just wants you to live a disciplined, deny yourself, and we do have to deny ourselves, life. But you see, that's how we think of God. We tend to think of him as a cosmic killjoy. If Jesus ever had an an opportunity to address people on their tendency to overindulge, this was it. But he doesn't do that. He turns the water into wine. And we're going to see not just a little bit of wine, a lot of wine. He could have scolded them. He could have said, yo, this is a gift, but you're abusing it. You had a cup. That's enough. He doesn't do that. Liberal theologians. So, so when you think of, we think of politically the liberals and we think politically of conservatives. Well, they're the same thing. It's true in the church and in theology. Liberal theologians have had such a problem with this passage. Do you know why? It's, it's maybe a problem that some of you have as well. Because you can't believe in a miracle. They so couldn't believe that Jesus did miracles that they came up with all kinds of explanations for this. Jesus didn't turn water into wine. Nobody can do that. Or you can do it, but it takes time. (laughs) You can't do it immediately. So they said, oh, we know what happened. In the bottom of those jars was the dregs of the wine. There was some, some thick sludge down in the bottom. And so, Je- so Jesus had them pour water in there, and it kind of mixed together. It tasted a little bit like wine, and they'd been drinking for a while anyway. So that's what happened. One commentator said, one preacher said that Jesus didn't turn the water into wine he, because that would be a supernatural thing. He didn't do that. That, was a, that would be a miracle. He turned the water into water, and then he said, and water's really the best wine. Guys, that's an insufficient explanation. <laughs> a clear reading of Scripture here is that Jesus turned the water into wine. Now, conservatives have trouble with this, too. Conservative pastors jump through hoops on this one because they're so embarrassed that Jesus, their Savior, turned water into alcohol because they preach that it's a sin to drink alcohol. Man, I got all your attention now. Look at you. What's he going to say about this? So what do they do? They just say he didn't turn it into wine. He turned it into the fruit of the vine, which is grape juice. That's an insignificant explanation. 
It doesn't say he turned it into grape juice. It says he turned it into wine. The Jewish, the Jews at the time saw wine as a gift from God. Wine was what was used in celebration. Make no mistake, they weren't wondering, is this grape juice or is this wine? Is this fermented or not? The psalmist said that wine had the capacity to make the heart glad. I think the Bible is clear that Jesus made wine and drank wine. And I don't think there's a single verse in the Bible or word in the Bible that teaches that it's sinful to drink wine. What the Bible tells us is it's sinful to get drunk. But the possibility of abuse doesn't mean or require disuse. Now, some would say they have a conviction. I have a close friend who got so addicted to alcohol and, and cocaine and, and, and has gotten clean and God has helped him. And he has said, I will never touch an alcoholic drink the rest of my life because for me, that could lead me down a road. Do I tell him, ah, oh, come on, grow up? No. I respect his conviction. And if you're sitting here today and you would say drinking wine or drinking alcohol is sin for you, then you shouldn't drink because that's your conscience. And you shouldn't go against conscience because to do so is to sin. Can I move on? What happens? They fill the jars. He turns the water into wine. And they celebrate. I come back to my original question. This was a sign, the first sign. What does it signify? It's not about the water into wine. It's what it points to. What's the significance? Here it is. There is transforming power associated with Jesus. Jesus has transforming power. So I want to look, just in, close, in, in closing, I wanna, we're not closing quite yet, but in, I want to just turn our attention to application. I want to look at where and how does Jesus has transforming power, and what does that have to do with me? What's the benefit of that? It's not like, well, I'll stop. I just want to give you a few points of application. Number one, we're talking about the transforming power of Jesus. And the first thing I want to say is this. Jesus turns the water of religion into the wine of a relationship. What does that mean? I'll say it again. Jesus turns the water of religion, which in this case I'm using religion negatively. I'm using the word religion negatively, and it's not always used negatively. I'm using it negatively to a pursuit of the law that justifies you before God. So you're always trying to work to get God to like you. You're always trying to do works. You're always trying to obey trying to keep the standards in order to be justified before God. And, and Jesus turns that water of a religious system 
into the wine of the relief that comes from trusting him for the transforming power of his work to save you. Does that mean anything to anybody? Let me just show you those purification jars. It says right there, they were purification jars. They were large stone jars made of stone. The Jews didn't only at that time use stone jars. They also used earthen jars to, to contain liquids and, and, and water. But these jars were used for ritual cleansing. That was very important to the Jews of the day. They had to stay clean in their religious system. So when they showed up for the wedding, there were these stone jars, which were cleaner than earthen mud jars. They could ensure clean water for their guests to drink, but also when they showed up after walking many miles, they had to wash their hands and wash their feet. And they needed to do that with clean water. And so these jars, each of them holding about 30 gallons, were reserved for that purpose. Jesus turns those six purification jars of water into wine. What's the significance? The significance is the old way, the Old Testament way of getting to God through ritual cleansing, through obedience to the law, is being done away with. The law pointed to getting right with God through your obedience, through, through your attention to the law, but it gave no permanent relief because you constantly kept on doing wrong things. And the law couldn't relieve you of the guilt and shame that you feel. You've all experienced this. You've done something bad, and the way you oftentimes deal with that is do something good in its place. Try to justify myself. We think that. If, if I can get to the end of my life and my good outweighs my bad, maybe God will grade on the curve and I'll be justified with him. What Jesus is saying is you can never justify yourself. You could never ritually cleanse yourself. You could never do enough good works to make yourself clean before God. God cleans you through the blood of Jesus. When you put your faith and trust in him, your sins are forgiven, totally blotted out, dealt with. And so what I'm saying is Jesus is, has this transforming power to take our religious system, which is just like water, and turn it into the wine of the relief that comes from trusting in him. Amen? Jesus turns... Jesus' transforming power leads to a life of thriving for those that trust him. So we move from kind of survival to thriving, from surviving to thriving. Where do I see that? Well, there's these large stone jars. Remember, this is a predicament. This is a potentially embarrassing, even facing a lawsuit situation. Jesus takes a situation that is potentially embarrassing, and he turns it into something that's amazing. He takes these large stone jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons of water, and turns it into potentially 180 gallons of wine. So this family went from running out of wine to now having 180 gallons of wine. I know you're wondering about this. How many bottles is that? I did the math. That's, uh, hold on, Nine, that's about 900 bottles of wine. 
900 bottles. And not only was the wine, it wasn't like you ever go to the, to, the, to the liquor store to buy wine and you go low shelf, right? Sometimes you're just, you're just trying to get some, you don't have a lot of money, you go Bully Hill or something like that. You go the cheap bottle, right? $5.99, $4.99 or something like this. This is 900 bottles of top shelf. The master of ceremonies said, whoa, you have saved the best wine for last. Most people wouldn't do that. Most people get the good stuff out first. Jesus, this is the best wine that anyone's ever tasted. And now this couple has 900 bottles of it. He took an potentially embarrassing situation and he transformed it into fortune. That's the transforming power of Jesus. Jesus is not stingy towards you. Jesus gives and gives and gives. He's generous in his giving. He's abundant in his giving. Jesus is not like us. You do something good, maybe I'll do something good back. But you do something bad, and I withhold. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus gives of himself. And then he promises to keep on abundantly giving to us through this life and through a life eternal. You seeing it? I'll get Brandon to, to come up. I just, I, I see this in a, a friend of mine who has just begun to follow Jesus. It's really amazing watching her. And she's had some struggles. She's been struggling with depression struggling with some fears, probably struggling with shame and guilt and all kinds of things. And so I've just had this opportunity to talk with her and share the gospel with her. And I was talking to her recently. I was saying, how are you doing right now? Some real bad depression. Bad struggles. Feeling like you can't get out of bed. And she was saying to me, I feel like my life is totally changing. And I said, why? And she began to describe some things, but then she said, the, the reality of it is, I've been reading the Bible, I feel a love for Jesus growing in my heart, and I'm trying to follow him, and I think it's changing everything. <laughs> and it is, right? Because of the transforming power of Jesus to change. He wants to give to you. The transforming power of our, our motivations. I, the transforming power of Jesus. The law is not a good motivator. You can only stay disciplined for so long. You're going to do what you love. And what this miracle, what this sign points to is Jesus transforms our loves. It's way better to try to obey Jesus out of love and gratitude than it is getting up in the morning and saying, i got to do this or he's going to be angry with me. Do you see this? Jesus transforms our motives. Love is a more compelling stimulus to obedience than the law, than discipline. The love of Jesus compels us, the scripture says. C.T. Studd was a famous missionary who sacrificed much for God. And he said this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. 
That's how we feel when we think about what Jesus has done for us. I want to live for Jesus. I get to live for Jesus because of all that he's done for me. Then I'll finally say this. The transforming power of Jesus to enable us to believe him and to trust him. And that's where this passage ends. Look at what it says. This is the, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And then what does it say? And his disciples believed in him. Now, didn't they believe in him when they followed him? Yeah, they did. But this sign fortified their belief. Have you ever, have you, are you in process in believing Jesus? Yes, you are. Some days you get up not believing as well as you did the day before. We're in process, and Jesus has this transforming power to help us to believe him even when situations are difficult. This is a picture of what it means to believe. It's not just, it's not, belief in Jesus is not just saying his name or or kind of, yeah, I believe in Jesus. That's not saving belief. That's not saving faith. Saving faith, saving belief is trusting Jesus, trusting in what he's provided, and then saying, I'm going to follow you. It requires action. It's not just enough to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. James tells us that the demons believe that. It's more than that. I'd like to think of it like this. Imagine that you were a father with your family and your house was burning, and you and the rest of the family got out. But one of your daughters was upstairs in the second floor. And you couldn't get to her because of the fire. And so she comes to the window. She tries to get out the door. She can't. She comes to the window. And she wonders what she's going to do. And her father sees her. He, he looks, so there's all kinds of smoke. There's fire. There's chaos. It's dark, it's dark at night. And he says to his daughter, jump. I'll catch you. Now, she might say, is that really my dad's voice? Can I jump? Can I trust? She might say, Dad, I hear you, but I can't see you. It's smoke and flames. And the dad says, it doesn't matter if you can see me. I can see you. Jump, and I'll catch you. And the daughter jumps and lands into the arms of her father. That's a picture of what belief is. Can we see it all clearly? No. But there's this confidence that Jesus can see it all. Jesus knows. Jesus can be trusted. And so it's not, it's not, it's not blind faith. It's not a faith that's not reason. She's reasoning. That's my dad calling me. And my dad loves me. And I know he would do anything he could to, to rescue me. So I can't see him, but I can hear him. And I'm going to jump. That's what it looks like to trust Jesus. Sometimes you don't know what he's doing. 
Sometimes you can't figure out what he's up to in your life. Sometimes you can't trace his hand. But you trust that he is who he says he is, and he possesses transforming power, and that's what this story signals. That's what this story points to, the transforming power of Jesus. Have you trusted him? Will you trust him? Church, let's continue to trust Jesus and the one whose grace has a transforming effect upon our lives. Amen.